through Genesis this morning. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 25. Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you're following along in one of the Bibles there in your seat, it's going to be on page 19 uh, in that uh, in that Bible. Remember what we've been looking at and tracing through so far through Genesis is um, God's grand mission um, to bring about rescue and restoration. Rescue from the consequences of our sin in the world and restoration to restore all things to our, our, their uh, proper functioning in the way that God intended and designed it. In fact, not just to restore it like they were, but to bring it about to be something even better. So we've seen the way that that has been going through, that God has, has settled on working through this unlikely couple, uh, Abram and Sarah, who God later changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. And through them, the hope of this promised one that would come. Uh, we've been uh, wondering how God's going to bring about and, and do it, even though Sarah was barren and both Abraham and Sarah were very old when Isaac was finally born. We've seen Abraham and Sarah's struggles to to cling to God's promises in the midst of uh, this. uh, Sometimes they wonder, is God actually working? And so they've clinged to different things at different times. Well, this morning we're coming to the end of Abraham's life. Um, And we're going to see actually the the account of his, his death. We might even call it his obituary. And... Uh, a time to reflect and look back at uh, Abraham's struggles, God's faithfulness, and for us also to reflect on our, our own um, struggles with, with faithfully following the Lord as well as we await His His promises. So if you would, turn to chapter 25 of Genesis. We are just going to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Uh, next week we'll pick up with the, the last the, the second half of this, uh, this chapter. Um, so if you would, uh, follow along with me as I read for us from chapter 25 of Genesis. This is God's word for us this morning. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuha, Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abidah, and Eldaha. And these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. 
These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar, Adbil, Misbam, Mishma, Duma, Masah, Hadad, Tamah, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedamah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of Ishmael, of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word you continue to convince us of your, uh, of your power and of your, your might, of your work, of your grace. We pray that you would, Holy Spirit, apply this word from chapter 25 to our hearts this morning. That we would cling to the hope of the promises that we have in Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So I went to, my undergrad was at North Carolina State University, and I went potluck finding a roommate, and so uh, the, my roommate that we got assigned called me, and you know, we were figuring out who was going to bring what, so we didn't you know, have you know, four couches in our room and everything, so he brought some stuff, and I brought some stuff, and we showed up, and one of the things that was on my roommate's list that he brought to our dorm room was a Brita water pitcher, the filtering kind. And he loved this Brita pitcher. He used to proclaim the greatness of the fresh, clean water that it would produce and offered it to people who came into our room. Uh, I liked the Brita water. It tasted fine, but it was so slow. I don't know if you've ever had one of these. If you empty it, you have to pour water in the top, and then it's got to drain through this thing, and it drips so, so slow. And when you're thirsty, and or you just want cold water, I just never had the time nor the desire to sit there and wait on it. I figured, hey, it's a lot more efficient and a better use of my time if I just get rid of the filter part and fill the water up, the pitcher up at the sink, put the filter back in, and then stick it in the refrigerator. It'll get cold. I don't have to sit around waiting on it to drain and take half an an hour out of my day to refill this pitcher. So that's what I started doing. But I never told my roommate. I let some of my friends in on the the scheme. And uh, they would come in and they would take a drink of it. And they're like, man, this water is so good and fresh. And my roommate would go, yeah, it's Brita water. And we just kind of grin and smile over in the corner. He never knew. But it saved, I don't know, hours off of my life sitting and trying to refill this thing. Uh, But think about this in our relationship with the Lord. Sometimes I think personally, and maybe you do too, that, that your schemes and the way that you work can be a lot more efficient and work quicker and faster than the Lord can. Sometimes it if we have to wait on Him or at least do things the way He's called us to, it can make our life more difficult. 
It can take a lot more time as we wait on Him. Um, And we all really sometimes think we have better things to do than wait on God to do something in our life. Uh, Think about the the ways that if you... um, uh, of how much harder it is to obey and follow God and what He's called us to do. And you could just get things over a lot quicker if you didn't have to follow what He's said. Think about um, uh, playing with some of your friends. And they take a toy that you really want to, to be playing with, and you know that you should share, you know that you should forgive. But man, that's really hard to do. And it would just be a lot easier... And a better use of your time, you think, if I just whop him one, take the toy back, get my anger over with, and get what's mine instead of having to wait until this kid leaves to play with a toy that I know is mine. Think about how much time you could save not studying for your tests in school. I mean, God has called us to live lives of integrity and to do honest and to work hard, but... If my neighbor's studying for the test, why do both of us need to study for it? Uh, I could be doing so much other stuff better if I just look on his paper or use one from my older brother or sister from the, from the year before. Um, think about how quickly you could advance um, in your career if instead of actually having to go about building up your resume... You just went ahead and, um, and uh, put whatever you wanted on it to get the job that you know you need. Because, I mean, why do we need to really wait on God to provide for us in the midst of uh, a difficult time financially? If I can get a job that's going to provide better, then why not do it? Why do I need to wait on Him? I can get something better quicker if I'm not bogged down by these rules God's given me. Um, think about how much more money you could make in your business if you fudged a little bit on your, uh, on your expense reports, um, or what you could get back as you, as you turn in expense reports and reimbursements to your boss. Uh, is that really the, what I should have been spending the company's money on or, or not? Um, or think about selling stuff on Craigslist. If you really, do you know, I really need to be honest about all the issues and troubles that this riding lawnmower has? I could really get rid of it so much quicker and use that money on something else if I wasn't having to be honest like the Lord has called us to be. Um, you see, we can get to places we think uh, a lot more, uh, a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently then it seems like uh, God can, if we're having to rely on trust in Him, wait on Him to do something, because maybe you've experienced like me, God is not always in a hurry to work and act on your schedule. So wouldn't it just be so much better if you could just take it into your own hands and accomplish things a lot faster than He ever would? Well, Abraham, we've seen over these past couple of chapters has taken that approach many times. And as we look here at Abraham's obituary, we can see in some ways when Abraham decided, I'm not going to wait on God, things happened a lot faster. Remember what God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
Multitudes are going to come from you. Nations are going to come from you. What do we see? When Abraham had to rely and wait on God, it took years and years and years until Sarah and Abraham were past childbearing years before they even got one kid. But look here. When Abraham started working, though, look at the results that came about. This, as chapter 25 starts off, now, the way that it, it reads, you could think that Abraham uh, married Keturah, this wife, after Sarah died. But the way the Hebrew uh, narrative functions, it's very likely that uh, this wife was also taken um, at some time when Sarah was still alive, maybe even before Isaac was born. Um, and, and so look, look at how quickly Abraham started seeming to fulfill God's promises when he started to get to work with Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Then from even just Jokshan, a few more kids come. If we start counting these, and then we look at the end of Abraham's uh, obituary here where it touches back on Ishmael. Remember that, that whole uh, encounter and what happened there? Another time when Abraham decided, look, God's like a Brita pitcher. He's taken too long. It's going to be a lot faster if I take things into my own hands. And what happened? Right away, there was Ishmael. And look at what's come about out of Ishmael's line. Um, uh, it says uh, all of these sons that came from Ishmael, Nabioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kar, Abdil, Mishbam, Mishma, Duma, Massah, and it goes on. Not just that, it says these guys became 12 princes according to their tribes, and they settled in Havilah to Shur. They settled over, all the, over against all their kinsmen. I mean, these began, began to become powerful, um, influential tribe of, of nomads. I mean, we look at it and we're like, waiting on God is slow, and it doesn't seem like anything is getting accomplished. Maybe even God is not really even interested in doing what he said that he wants to do. So he needs, if it's going to happen, I need to be about doing it. Abraham here, it seems like on first evaluation that Abraham is tons more efficient and tons more effective at accomplishing things in the world when he takes things into his own hands instead of waiting and relying on the Lord. But... If we look, though, at how Abraham evaluates what's going on, we'll realize that's not really what, how he evaluates it as he looks back on what's happened. Remember, Abraham here is now at the end of his life. He's getting ready to die, and in this chapter he will die. This is a man who we've seen mature as God's been at work in his life, as he's been moving him from a place of struggle and, and many times faithlessness to a, a life of walking in faith and dependency upon the Lord. And look at what Abraham does in uh, verse 6. So he has these concubines, uh, Keturah and um, Hagar, and these many sons. I think even just from what's counted here, there's like 16 or more uh, children and grandchildren that come from here. But it says to the sons of his concubine, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away 
from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Abraham seems to evaluate it differently. Here he seems to be breaking ties with his efforts to bring about God's work in the world, to rely and depend upon himself. Abraham's saying, look, as we're moving forward, it's going to be necessary that I I separate not just Isaac, but myself from what has gone on in my efforts to try to be more efficient and effective than God. And actually, God seems to evaluate that Abraham's work wasn't as efficient and effective as, as he thought. And that trusting and relying on God, in fact, was the better way to go as well. Notice in verse 11 that after Abraham died, it's not all the sons of Keturah and grandchildren that came from her, nor all the sons and grandchildren that comes from Ishmael and Hagar and that line. But it says in verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. You see, God's focus and Abraham's focus is relying on the promise and the son that came through the work, the supernatural work of God through Isaac. But this seems pretty, it seems kind of cruel on Abraham's part and Isaac's. I mean, he has all these kids, yet he just kind of sends them away with a consolation prize. It's like Isaac gets everything and everybody else gets, you know, the parting gifts that they hand out at the uh, Price is Right if you don't really win your showcase showdown. Um, I I mean, really? You're going to treat your children and these kids like this? God's not going to bless them? Abraham's not going to get, he gives absolutely everything but a few gifts to Isaac. All these other kids get these gifts. What is going on? Well, what Abraham here is doing is he's abandoning all hope and trust in his work. He's saying, I'm not going to rely on it at all. I'm sending these, these children And these heirs away because God has promised that he is going to work through the the son that he's promised me and that he brought about through Isaac. And what we see here is evidence of Abraham relying and trusting in God. What God is doing here at this point, significant, is he's He's having to to reveal to us and to Abraham and those who are watching even here in the the promised land is a, a lot of communication is happening and revelation of who God is and how he works in the world based on the way that this promise is going to be fulfilled. And especially here early on, how God works and whom it is that God works through will communicate significant things about how the promise is going to be fulfilled, about how God is at work in the world, and how humanity experiences God's blessing and His work of rescue and restoration. Um, In uh, 
Santa Fe, New Mexico, for the last 96 years, they have been constructing, uh, they do it every year, they haven't been building it for 96 years, but every year they build this 50-foot tall marionette puppet named Zozobra. We have a picture of Zozobra. You'll see up here, maybe you can cut the lights off if you can get a better picture. Can you see this creepy guy? He's 50 feet tall. Zozobra is developed from a... Uh, the, the name comes from the Spanish word for, for pain and despair. Um, and the, the, the way that, that, that it works is they work all year building this 50-foot tall Zozobra out of wood and paper mache and cloth and all of this stuff. And, and everybody, tens of thousands of people come to this celebration. And, and in Zozobra, as they're building him, they, put, they write down on pieces of paper their fears, their grief, their despair, their hurt, their pain, and they put it inside Zozobra. Some people bring uh, uh, medical reports and, and scans that, that have revealed that they have cancer or some other diseases, and they put these into Zozobra. There's divorce papers and bankruptcy statements. Multiple wedding dresses sometimes go into Zozobra. It's a reminder of people's places of pain and grief and suffering. Um, there's death uh, um, like announcements and the, the police actually bring thousands of shredded uh, police reports that they put in here. And it all culminates in them setting Zazobra on fire as a way to deliver themselves from their gloom and their despair. And tens of thousands of people cheer because by maybe some way, by putting all of our our, our despair and our grief onto and into Zozobra as he's burnt up, our grief will go away. Our gloom will go away. We'll be delivered and set free and feel better about living in this, this world. Um, it may sound kind of crazy. I mean, you look at this and you're like, really? This is, this is like going on in America? This is like a giant, it seems like it's a giant idol. It reminds me kind of like in the book of Daniel when uh, they're building this big statue to Nebuchadnezzar and praying to it. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting even the way that, it, that, that it's set up. It's a puppet, right? How is a puppet controlled? Unless you're Pinocchio, you're not controlled by yourself. Someone must manipulate and move you. A person. Zozobra was constructed by people. They build him. They put their stuff in him. They set him on fire. His total existence is dependent upon people's works and actions. Just even looking at and talking about who and what Zozobra is, this puppet controlled by people, this is... Man's effort at somehow trying to find relief from gloom and despair and struggle in this fallen world. We may think, oh, of course, this would never work. How foolish are you? 
residents of Santa Fe that you would do this? But don't we do the same thing? It might not be a 50 foot tall statue that you're placing your gloom and your despair and your fears in and hoping that they'll burn up and go away. But could it be that bottle on your cabinet? Could, could it be the children sitting in the seats next to you thinking that if I just had children of my own and a family of my own, it might relieve me of my despair and my hurt, my loneliness? Maybe it's some of those things we talked about before and manipulating things in our world of trying to get a better job and thinking that if I can just if I just pour myself into my work and I advance in my job and get this position or this assignment or this title, then I will have made it. And the insignificance that I felt and the mocking that came from my parents for pursuing a career like this or of never living up and satisfying them, now I'll have made it and I can prove it to them and I can put all of that stuff behind me. Or if I can just... You know what makes my life miserable right now, or at least what would give me a hope of things feeling better, is if, if I could redo my kitchen. And if from my sink, I could look out the back door and see my kids playing in the backyard. And if my house was just in the right way, then that material thing would bring hope and satisfaction to me, and it would be just a place I could escape the troubles and difficulties of this world. Is it really any different? Is it really any different of what's going on here and what we do when we try to go about man-made ways to deliver ourselves and other people from the gloom and hurt and suffering in our fallen and broken world? Is that not what Abraham was doing? God promised that he would be doing that, but Abraham couldn't wait. He couldn't wait on God, not just to deliver stuff in this broken world. But remember, he and Sarah ate for children. They couldn't have them. Maybe they begin to blame God. And so they took it into their own hands and look at the result. All of these kids, I didn't need you, God. But Abraham, now looking back, he's saying, no, look. If the promise begins to move forward and go about and begin to be accomplished through man-made efforts, then what's going to be communicated is Abraham. Remember, Abraham was blessed that he might be a blessing. Abraham and Sarah were called and saved and sent out into the world to be ambassadors for Yahweh. The one living and true God who is the only one who is at work in the world to bring about redemption. There are no other gods. It's going to be through his work alone when he sends the deliverer to deliver his people. Well, if from the beginning, the way the, the promise begins to move forward is through Abraham's schemes and Sarah's schemes, through their great puppeteering work and their Zozobra actions in the world. What is that going to communicate 
about this covenant keeping God? What is it going to communicate to the watching world and the nations about what is needed actually to be made right? It would be false advertising if what's communicated is, oh, you know what? The way you escape gloom, the way you escape despair, the way you escape zozobra in the world is not through the one living in true God. It's not through hoping and clinging and depending upon him and his promises. It's through you taking action. Then God's name and his fame is marred as it goes into the world. You see here, significantly, God is saying by blessing Isaac, the son who came about through supernatural means, when Sarah's womb was dead, when Abraham, even remember we saw this several times as Hebrews is commenting back on it, when he was as good as dead, God brought about the son of the promise. Abraham here is sending Keturah's children away. He's sending Ishmael and his descendants away so that it will be evident, not just to them, but to the watching world, that the only hope we have is on the promises as they're fulfilled by God's work alone. They don't get the land. Well, why not? think they would be upset? God's promised Abraham all this land and these kids don't get any of it? Well, you got to remember, it wasn't just land for the sake of land. It wasn't like this is, they're all sitting around wondering, all right, when old, uh, when old Abe kicks the bucket, what, what's going to be yours and what's going to be mine? And they're marking off on the will what's going to be theirs. This isn't just some, uh, piece of inheritance to pass on. Remember why God is giving the land. The land is there for the fulfillment of the mission. The land is there for God's people to live in to demonstrate God's sufficiency and His beauty to the watching world as they cross through this uh, intersection of this, these trade routes and the, the, the crossroads of the world at this time. It's not just land. But they get nothing Seriously? God's just going to kick them out and cut them off like that? What about the promise to bless the nations? Aren't these nations? I mean, what we read about here, Midian, they become a nation. Sheba, they become a nation. From Ishmael, Kadar, and these, these tribal groups become peoples. Do they not need to hear the hope and the promise? God, are you not going to redeem and save them? What's well, interesting. We can focus on what they didn't get, but let's think about what they did receive. Remember, what God, the promise that he gave Abraham was communicated and symbolized through the, the sign of circumcision. A promise that was supposed to be applied to Abraham's sons that would communicate to them, we looked at this several, several weeks ago now, that there's something wrong with our world and us, and impurity needs to be removed. Sin and uncleanness needs to be removed. And in order for that to happen, blood must be shed. And when you hope in the covenant-making and keeping God, and you look to Him in faith, 
not through your good works, but in faith, that uncleanness can be taken away and you can find forgiveness and righteousness in Him. Every single one of these descendants and sons of Abraham through Keturah and sons uh, of Abraham from Ishmael received this sign. So as they leave and go forth, they bear in their body a mark of the promise. Hope in the one that God has promised would come. So, so actually to leave and say the promise is going to come through Isaac. That should have been a very hopeful thing to hear God is going to bring about his promises. But you know how these guys responded? If we continue through through uh, throughout scripture, we find that these descendants of Keturah and these descendants of Ishmael reject those promises. They turn a cold and hard heart to the promises that they bore in their body. That even they, if they would look, they might not be the one that the promise is going to come through, but they could be beneficiaries of the promise. They could experience God's forgiveness and a restored relationship with Him. But they became enemies of God and His people. Later on, as we go through, we'll find this out. Um, uh, Joseph, a later descendant of of, uh, of Abraham gets sold into slavery by his brothers, but the people who bought him, Midianites and Ishmaelites, the sons of Keturah and Ishmael. Later on through uh, the, the wilderness wanderings and during the time of the judges, over and over again, the Midianites attack God's people, seeking to destroy them and uh, in fact, during the, the period, during numbers and the wanderings, even before that, they tried to lead God's people astray to worship false gods. In fact, there's a whole psalm, Psalm 83, that talks about the Ishmaelites and these other groups who their heart intention is to seek to destroy the people of Israel, the people of promise. They've hardened their hearts against God and the promises that He's given them. They've said, I'm not going to look and hope to Him and to the God who works supernaturally to bring about restoration in this world. I'm going to do it myself. And they continue to live in a way like this. But how does, how does God respond to people who harden their hearts to Him, who reject Him and run from Him. Does He continue to pursue them in mercy and grace, freely offering and calling out to them in the Gospel? Well, it's interesting. Remember who we said was writing this book of Genesis. Moses was writing the book of Genesis to the people of Israel as they're leaving Egypt. Well, it's interesting Moses, when he flees Egypt prior to coming back, he takes refuge among the people of Midian. He looks like an Egyptian, so he, you know, doesn't seem like an out-of-place Israelite. Um, but he marries a, a woman, Zipporah, who is the daughter of a priest, probably the high priest of Midian. And later on, what we realize is that Jethro, the high priest of Midian, doesn't believe that Yahweh, the covenant-making and keeping God, is the great God. 
the God of gods. He's been worshiping other gods. And in fact, they've been, although they bear the mark of the sign of the covenant in their bodies and they continue to pass it on to their kids, they've lost all understanding of what the hope is, that it relies in Yahweh, the God of Israel. But by hearing Moses proclaim to him the great supernatural work that God does to deliver the Israelite slaves from the mighty military power of Egypt, and he defeats the God of Egypt, Jethro responds like this in Exodus 18. The great high priest of Midian says, Now I know that Yahweh is the great God over all gods. Salvation comes to the high priest of Midian whose people have rejected the promises. Later, in Isaiah chapter 60, remember, we've been hoping and looking in Genesis, when will the time come when restoration happens, when redemption happens? Isaiah, this prophet, is telling and seeking to urge God's people to faithfulness. And he gives them a picture of what it will look like when God makes all things new. And he restores things. And his promises are finally coming to, uh, to full fruition. Listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter, of chapter 60 of Isaiah. If you want to turn there, I'll read it. You don't have to. It's on page 619. He's speaking to Israel here about when they are are finally uh, restored. The people of God are restored. We'll even take it out of thinking through national or nation state Israel. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian. And Ephah. And those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nabioth. Before that was Keturah. Now we're moving into Ishmael's line. They shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify. My beautiful house. What God is saying is, look, the work of redemption that I'm doing, the promises that I have out there on offer means that at any time you call upon the mercy, my mercies, and you look to me and the promises that I give, that when you look to me in faith, I will redeem you. I will restore you. The promise is always on offer. Regardless as if in your past you have rejected the living and true God, the offer is there. Don't neglect it. See how our merciful God responds, who says, when you look to me in faith, I will show you mercy. I will forgive you. How does he do it? How can he do that? How can he... Redeem and save those who would reject Him and abandon His promises. How can He still offer out to them the hand of grace and mercy and give us this picture that when all things are restored, there will be people, not all of them, but there will be those who called out to God in mercy from the line of Keturah and from the line of Ishmael 
who will sing praises of Yahweh forever. How will that happen? It's not through a zozobra. It's through the promised one who's coming through the supernatural line of Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David to little Mary and Joseph when Jesus is born in poverty and humility. As He goes to the cross, all of our gloom and our despair and our fears and our sin aren't put on some marionette puppet. They're put on the living and true God who entered into our world supernaturally to do a work that no man could do. The schemes of man could not accomplish this. Only God Himself. And when Jesus suffered and died, all of those things were taken care of. Our sin was done away with. And we are delivered ultimately long-term from our gloom and our despair because of the work of Jesus. That's the hope we have. Christian, do not fear. It might not look right now like your gloom is being delivered. You may be living in despair for a long time and struggling and suffering. But the promise we have is that our slow working God is faithful to fulfill his promises in ways that you can't imagine or accomplish. We need to cling and trust in him. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, or maybe you you grew up in the church and you've abandoned that. Know that. The offer of mercy is still there. God says, come. Come to me. Jesus is more sufficient than Zazobra. You can find grace and deliverance from Him forever. Because this Zazobra burns to the ground, they sweep Him up, and they got to do it again next year. But Jesus rose from the dead. He reigns now, and He is returning And those who descend from Abraham, from Keturah, and from Ishmael, and those of us who descend from Abraham because we are his children by faith in Jesus, Christ will return and restore all things. And we will celebrate for eternity his work of redemption that can only come through his work and not our schemes. Let's pray.